Hello there. Welcome along to the podcast, Sport and Life. How are you doing? Thank you for hitting on the button. Do appreciate it. Thank you to the sponsors, as ever, Bagnall Olofsson of Cheltenham and Serene AV, who are specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands, providing solutions based around high-quality customer service and installations. Check out Bagnall Olofsson Cheltenham's website, BO underscore Cheltenham on Twitter, and Instagram, fine team led by Jason Briggs. It's not just the Bangalore equipment through that company, Serene AV. Always emphasize the fact they can source you home entertainment systems from whatever brand best suits your dream, your budget, and they can offer a consultation to sort of uh, drill down on what exactly that is that will suit your needs. So Bangalore and Cheltenham really appreciate their support. No big supporters of uh, the local community support the Cheltenham Town Football Club as well. And they uh, actually run, or Jason Briggs, the lead man there, runs a club called AFC Cheltenham an amateur football club uh, pretty near to the town, just north of the town in a village called Bishop's Cleeve. So I hope they're all well enjoying the return of football. I hope you are too. If you've been able to play sport this week and go indoors to a gym. My wife went to a spin class for the first time in a long time, uh, over a year, and really enjoyed that. Although she got a headache afterwards from the the sweating. <laughs> she wasn't used to it. Um, but yeah, I hope you're well. I hope you're enjoying life. I hope you're feeling well. If you are looking to optimize your immunity, Remember, the podcast has an association with Cytoplan, food-based supplement company that my father, Dr. Mark Draper, has been working as an advisor consultant for for the past 20 years or so. We still pay for our supplements, always stress that, albeit at a discount. And we offer you a discount through the podcast as well. One that I take is Immune Complete 2 as a, a multivitamin vitamin, which includes the crucial vitamin D3 and the trace elements, zinc and selenium that my father's research into soil samples suggests are diminishing in UK soil, certainly, and it varies according to what part of the world, what country, what state, what region you're in. But certainly he believes that that's an important part of holistic health is topping up those trace elements for our immunity, our kind of resistance to, to chronic illnesses like cancer and things like that. So he's a big advocate of, of the supplements from Cytoplan. You can get all the supplements specific supplements as well as well as the, the holistic multivitamin ones from cytoplan.co.uk c-y-t-o-p-l-a-n.co.uk and the podcast discount code is draper 10 r d-r-a-p-e-r my last name all capital letters the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. Right on to today's podcast. Fascinating conversation. One I've been meaning to have for a while with legendary boxing author Don McRae, Donald McRae, South African, but been living in the UK for 30 plus years, has also written one of the seminal books in boxing back in the mid 90s. And his 30s, I believe, was Dark Trade, Lost in Boxing. And I've got that on order to reread that actually off the back of this. And he's also written a book that I enjoyed and discussed with him on the Sky Sports Boxing podcast four or five years ago when I was hosting that, which was uh, The Double Life of Emil Griffith, former three-weight world champion, bisexual man who ended up, or Benny, Benny Parrott, his opponent, ended up dying in the wake of sort of emotionally charged and and sort of acerbic contest between the two where where Parrot had had intimated his homosexuality to Emil Griffiths. So that's a, a powerful, powerful book as well. He's, he's noted for that, but he also writes really good long-form interviews currently in the Guardian newspaper in the UK, which you can read online. And he wrote Stephen Gerrard's autobiography or Ghost wrote that in 2015. So he's very much a man steeped in sport and a, a counterculture figure, I think, at the moment. He gets to occupy a space where... He writes books, he writes long form, thousands of word pieces for consumption, and he gets great audiences as well. So it illustrates, I suppose, in a movement against the, the sign of the times is that people will read quality, in-depth journalism and writing. And he's a, a fine, intriguing character who grew up in apartheid South Africa and is very insightful about that as well and, and how that was the norm growing up for him, for black and white people to be separated and black people to be subjugated and how he's come to... I guess, in, in inspiration towards the concepts of equality through sport, through Muhammad Ali chiefly, and through the sporting boycott of South Africa. So powerful stuff here from the one and only Don McRae. Don McRae, welcome to the podcast. Really appreciate catching up with you. We're just saying four or five years since we, we shared a room, shared an afternoon on the Sky Sports Boxing podcast. Oh, it's kind of flash by, but I enjoyed enjoyed that one, and it's uh, good to be on your podcast, Ed. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we were discussing in in chief part, and we'll, we'll probably get to it. The Emil Griffith, Griffith, the 
double life of the three-weight world champion from the, the 1960s on the podcast at that point. You've written some fantastic books, but also some great journalism as, as the Guardian's sport interview of the week features writer. And I've just been um, rereading some of Manchester United fan, the Sir Alex Ferguson piece. And that was, that was really insightful, wasn't it? And it, it kind of illuminated to me why I suppose I love covering boxing to a certain extent is those stories often come out in real time, whereas in football, in slightly sort of um, more controlled environment of the past 20 years, yeah. we're not getting those stories till Sir Alex is in his late 70s. I know. And um, I, I went to that interview, Ed, with kind of quite ambivalent feelings because um, first I was thinking, oh, gosh, this is Fergie, who I've wanted to interview for many, many years. And yeah, there was a little nervousness because, of course, it's uh, Alex Ferguson. Mm. But also, they came, it came with a stipulation that um, he would not talk about Manchester United today, the Glazers, Ed Woodward, um, mm. the ESL, all the stuff that was kind of swirling about when this interview I was discussing um, whether it would happen. It was, you know, obviously it's still important news now, but particularly at that time, it was kind of key essential questions. Mm. So I had to weigh it up and obviously consulted with The Guardian. Um, and although it was disappointing that we couldn't ask him about those particular questions, I actually thought, well, this will be interesting just to have access to him and um, talk about his life. And in a way, it, I think it actually helped because um, he was so relaxed and he looked back at the past and I, I felt it was quite, a, mm. you know, fascinating listening to him. So it was one occasion where perhaps the sort of uh, obstacle which had been put up um, actually helped to become quite a, a deeper and more reflective interview in a way, I think. Yeah, one of the abiding takeaways for me, and we'll talk about tribalism and sectarianism and, and associated issues of, of sexism, racism and all the isms, but and he talks about that. But one thing that struck me was his development as a human being in terms of his standards, his discipline, because what I hadn't realised, and it was illuminated, I know he wasn't an elite level player, and this is Basically, I have to preface that with a sense that I've been paid 20 quid to play football a couple of times. So it's not like this guy was playing for, playing for Rangers and that's the pinnacle of Scottish yeah. football. But not if we compare him to Dennis Law of, of his era or Absolutely. someone like that. He wasn't the, the, yeah. the highest level Scottish footballer, but he was he was a professional player. But he wasn't as driven and as disciplined and as consistent as perhaps we'd imagine in later life. That was fascinating because he clearly evolved. Yeah, and I mean, I love the stuff about his father because, you know, his father was... Um, had worked in the Glasgow shipyards and was a disciplined, hardworking man. And young Alex, um, you know, <laughs> was not happy. He was sort of in the reserve team and um, for, I think, uh, was it St. Johnson, I think, at the time? And, um, you know, he started thinking, oh, well, I can't be too bothered. Um, turning <laughs> up on for a reserve team game, he would go out on the lash Friday yeah. night. And um, his dad actually sort of said, you have to change your, your lifestyle. And um, young Alex Ferguson sort of just wasn't going to do it. So they fell out and didn't speak for three years, which I didn't know it was it had lasted that long. And, um, you know, Alex ended up in jail for, for one night because he had a bit of a, a wayward night. Um, but then he just a short version of this anecdote. He um, got a young girl he knew to phone up the manager um, and pretend to be his mum and say that uh, Alex had flu and couldn't couldn't make the game. The manager quickly worked out this was a teenage girl and not Mrs. Ferguson. So he uh, sent a telegram, which shows how old, uh, how long ago it was to Mrs. Ferguson to say, um, you know, is your boy okay? Because uh, I don't think you called about him, did you? So she <laughs> tore Alex to pieces and said, you get down to the local payphone and you apologize to the manager. And uh, Alex still attempted to perpetuate the myth that he had flu, he used a handkerchief over the phone, but uh, the manager knew exactly what was going on. And he said, you're playing in the first team tomorrow against Rangers, who was Alex's boyhood um, team. Of course, what happened, he goes out, scores a hat-trick. And as he said, in that moment, his life changed completely. And after the game, he only lived about a quarter of a mile from Ibrox, went home. His mum was excited and said, oh, go have a wee word with your dad. And um, his dad, in, as Alex Ferguson said, in quite typically sort of Glaswegian, taciturn way, he, he sort of said to his dad, oh, how was that dad? And the dad said, mm, yeah, OK. Um, <laughs> but dad just couldn't contain his enthusiasm. And um, he was so excited. And they were reconciled. 
and Alex Ferguson said he learned so many lessons um, in, in, on that occasion. So yeah, those little personal stories, they're not perhaps relevant to what's going on in football today, but they helped me understand much more about Alex Ferguson, who is, let's mm. face it, the most iconic um, football manager in, in British football. Yeah, it's part of your process and clearly it's a job for you, Don, but I, I started this podcast in part because I wanted to elucidate why I'm still fascinated with sport as I, you know, in the yeah. time it was my mid-30s, now my late 30s. And I, I think yeah. actually, you know, what, what are the lessons from it? What are the, the, the takeaways from it? And there is a self-development narrative there with Ferguson, isn't there? That you can see that actually sport can be used as a vehicle to, in, to improve qualities of, of your character. Absolutely. And I think he's a layered and fascinating man. And we didn't have enough time um, to go into depth about his management techniques. But we touched on, on it to, to a certain extent and how, of course, he was a formidable manager full of fire and would absolutely lambaste his players if, if, they, if mm. they let him down. But there was this other side to him where he, he was a father figure. Um, he had a huge emotional intelligence. He knew when to ask a player how was he, he feeling, uh, how was he feeling at that time, and how he could help him if there were problems off the field. And there was just one line he said to me in that interview: is he said, "Oh, you know, people call it psychology." Hmm. He said, "I just call it management." Mm -hmm. And um, just and how he it took him time to evolve. And initially, he was his emotions would get the better of him. Um, but he learned how to harness those emotions. And yeah, fascinating to see how he developed over the years. And um, yeah, privileged to, to hear him talk about it. Yeah, it's that, that sort of interplay between reading hum other human beings in sport and how that plays out into society is so fascinating because you think, as you say, that he had that intuition of, of when to go soft, when to go hard. And I think sometimes in society now there is a, a, a sort of in sport as well, I see it that people are, are rightly expressing their feelings when they're upset and things like that. But there's also sort of another side to it sport remains incredibly harsh that if you don't make a certain level a certain standard people talk about loyalty but it, it does go out yeah. the window and I think he had a candor to him which sometimes I don't know is, is missing in some of the modern conversations we have yeah he did and you know he spoke he's you know he, he took some harsh decisions Jim Layton was his goalkeeper and um before the first FA Cup final they won under Fergie. Um, he decided to ask Jim Layton and in a harsh, which he knew was going to actually impair Jim Layton's future life. But he had to take that harsh decision um, for the for the long-term benefit of, of the team. And there's so much ambivalence in sport and there's heartache and, and there's candor, which, you know, he exemplifies i think he he talks honestly um to his to his players but you know then he switched it and i sort of said to him we spoke a little bit about what was happening in football today and i said oh you know steven gerrard who obviously i know quite well and had written his biography i said oh what do you think of stevie and him and alex had always had a bit of a tempestuous kind of relationship as <laughs> man united manager and liverpool captain and he just said what a magnificent job he's done on and yeah. off the field and the important thing, I think, is that he actually said the way Gerard actually handles the media mm. is fantastic. And in a way, he was praising his not being duplicitous or, or lying, but just that Gerard knows how to handle a, a media conference. And he said, Alex Ferguson said, you know, that is an art. So for all his candor, he was also telling me that management, especially in modern football, is about knowing what not to say, mm. um, which is kind of fascinating. And, and he said, Gerard has just got that that taped. Um, and you wrote a book with Gerard, didn't you? What, what were your takeaways from that? Um, <laughs> it was a tough thing to do because, um, I mean, my books, it normally take about four years. Mm. That one, I had 15 weeks and Ooh. just coming, um, it was 2015. He was down to the last four months of playing for Liverpool. There was huge emotion in him. Um, so <laughs> it was a, a difficult thing to do, but um, I wish, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I obviously did it far too quickly and I win sometime with that book because it needed, I would have liked to have edited it and done it differently. But we, we got it done and he was happy with it. And um, yeah, it was just a privilege to be with a, such a top footballer um, as he approached the end. And I mean, I never forget the first interview we did. Um, you know, normally the technique of an interview is you start with the easy questions, but mm. because 
very little time, kind of concentrated my mind. And I thought, I'm going to, we're going to start with the kind of one of the key moments, which was the slip against Chelsea. Yeah. And, you know, he just immediately, um, we'd only met once before. Um, he'd done his homework and decided that I'd be a different kind of writer for him, That's which was what he was looking for. Mm. So we didn't know each other at all. But within 10 minutes, he was telling me how, um, you know, after that game against Chelsea, which obviously cost them the title, which he'd spent his whole career attempting to win the league title for yep. Liverpool himself, tears were just falling down his cheeks, down his face. And we were, well, we got immediately into something quite deep. Um, so there were many moments like that. And yeah, just it, it feels a privilege and an honor to be able to spend time um, with people who are at the, the, the top end of, of, of sport. Time is, is a great thing, isn't it? And I think we've lost that a little bit in the media, the texture of, of journalism, the opportunity, the access. And I mentioned that in football, and it's great that you had the opportunity to speak to Gerard. What a powerful moment. Even as a Manchester United fan, I was almost rooting for Gerard in 2014 to, to win. The, <laughs> yeah. And as an England fan as well, because he'd been such an iconic figure, such a determined figure for, for so long, and such yeah. a talented and, and athletic and all-round all wonderful player. Yeah. But um, it's it, it's that time element that I think is sometimes missed, isn't it? We, we, we get fractures of, of interviews. We get clickbait online. You must, yeah. you must enjoy living in that rare space of, of time to, to write these pieces and to obviously write the books but to, to have time with people to explore things absolutely and I think you know beyond, beyond obviously being huge benefit to me I think it's a benefit to the interviewee and you know going back to Alex Ferguson um, I mean it was the only sort of newspaper interview um, that he did I mean there's a little small piece um, for the Daily Telegraph's film section but this was uh, the only you know big in-depth sports interview he was going to do in the UK and, um, you know, you have these negotiations, how much time are you going to get? And I was given, you know, 40 minutes, which I thought, well, that's okay. I'd like an hour or more, but, um, but I, was, I was anxious how it was going to go. But it was my, my intention, and a bit like we having now, it's like a conversation. And excuse mm. me, wobbling on here and waffling on as I, I love it. To, so we're having a conversation and, and that's what I always attempt to do in my interviews. And I was thinking, how is this going to work with Alex Ferguson? His son who made the film, which is excellent, sat in with us. Um, they had two publicists um, looking after Sir Alex. And I wanted to say, Sir Alex does not need looking after by <laughs> anyone, especially against me. Um, so I went into that interview thinking, oh, this is the dynamics are not good. Um, but honestly, within minutes, I just knew it was going to be okay mm. because I started talking and it became this kind of conversation. And I was always conscious of the time and not wasting it, but I told him a little bit about me and he kind of knew that I had sort of Aberdeen roots in, in on my father's side. Mm. So immediately it became this kind of conversation. And then whilst we were ongoing, we had to do it on zoom, unfortunately, uh, after 40 minutes, the publicist sort of publicists started sending me little text messages saying your time is up. <laughs> but I sort of said to um, Sir Alex, I said, Oh, you know, I just love this conversation. And I said, It surely calls for a bit more Fergie time. <laughs> Which, <laughs> no, lovely. He, 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 he laughed and he said, Yeah. And so we got another 10 or 15 minutes at his push. Um, but yeah, that time, Ed, you've hit the nail on the head. That is key because I think. You know, we all love sport and we all wonder what is it like to be a manager? What is it like to be a player or fighter or an Olympic athlete? What is it like in those moments before using a cliche battle commences? Um, and you need time and you also need the interviewee to trust you to be able to open up and say, actually, I was scared in that moment mm. or I felt lonely. And these things don't happen just quickly. You know, they need to sort of get a feel for you. So time is absolutely so vital. Um, but unfortunately, what is happening is because I think um, agents and um, managers want to control the narrative, that awful, you know, mm. they yeah. use. So therefore, they think if they diminish the time that an athlete um, is going to give to an interview, the, the less chance of you know, causing any damage. Um, but what it happens is that you get sort of one dimensional interviews. Um, so uh, as you can hear, I'm passionate about yeah. you know, having to do things well. 
I think I think it's really important. It comes through. And I think you've got tremendous art, not only having that time, you then structure your pieces and, and have a wonderful way with words to bring them to life and, and draw things out. And what, what you do and, and what I think quality journalism of, of in-depth features, whether it's audio like this or whether it's written, is you humanise the subject of the interview. And in that sense, it's it's a, the best way of, of creating nuance that then works against things like tribalism, which we see play out in the in, on the internet at the moment, social media, and you know, coming from your background in South Africa with apartheid, how, I guess, endemic that can be. And we can get so confused with things like that, focusing in the piece that you did, talks about sectarianism and how people are unhappy that he married a Catholic at Rangers. And that, that some yeah. of us boggles our mind, but then we see that in different things now, pro-lockdown, anti-lockdown, whatever it may be. There's, there's whole tribes that we get into. And I think with that time that we realize, oh, that they're normal people. And you and I, have I lived in the States, I lived in the West Indies as a kid. And I think moving around gives you that sense of, oh, we're all pretty similar. Whereas I think actually, sometimes if you don't have that time, we can keep that sort of them and us narrative going. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I think, it, again, I feel exa exactly the same is that, you know, I'm more interested in, in the human being within that iconic shell of a great, you know, sportsman or, or woman. I want to know what is it because they are human. Mm. And I want to know, you know, the moments where they have doubts and the moments that shape them when they were young. And for me, that's more interesting than um, I think there's a huge place to um, analyze um, what happens on the field. Um, but that's not I'm, I don't feel equipped enough to, to do that. And I'm I'm always going for the for the human angle. Um, so, yeah, thank you for saying that, because, uh, you know, that's always the intention. And I think also the conversation is what I'm aiming for less than an interview and to listen is so important because I think you go into an interview and it's hard not to have preconceptions, especially if it's a famous person. Mm. But if you put those preconceptions to one side as much as possible, you actually get an opportunity to learn about the human being within that iconic figure. And of course, that's always going to be more interesting than the facade of the famous person because that it's just a, a public image and what we want to get is deep into the human being yeah i've seen a standoff develop over the past 20 years 15 years as a as a journalist between short snippets of access to players and then there's a there's a divide between the media and, and that includes a lot of different people in the infinite internet that that then sure. without that access you then get tensions and people want to run stories that perhaps they would have more roundedness to because if they if they knew the person had access to them, it'd be a bit more be less yeah. less separate and it's, it's interesting how it develops and just as an anecdote has been approached recently from a sports agent who would like to train his footballers as potential pundits in the media and also younger players on his books. And I said to him, well, I think, you know, I would like to encourage them to be open, not to be salacious or to be contentious yeah. and to, to be guarded about what they say in that sense, but just to be more human. Cause I think that would probably benefit the, the sports people as well, which is what we've seen in boxing leading on to that, Don. I don't know whether that's something that the sport was rooted in, in you as a kid or whether it was a journalist that it, it drew you in because typically boxing in the world of boxing is remarkably open. Well, it, it is, isn't it? And I think that's why Ed, you and I so love boxing. Well, I don't know whether we love boxing because boxing's a dirty business, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's complicated. It is complicated, but honestly, the, the fighters are incredible. And, um, you know, I've interviewed, I don't know how many, it must be over a thousand fighters in, in my long life. And I can, on one hand, I would battle to um, name those who haven't actually been open and willing to talk in intimate detail about their psychology and what motivates them. And I think that's, I've always, I think as a little boy in South Africa, um, I lived under apartheid and mm. Muhammad Ali, and I'm showing how old I am now. He was, I had just changed his name to Muhammad Ali. So this is 1967. I'm just turned six years old. And um, I didn't understand the political complexities of why Cassius Clay changed his name to Muhammad Ali. Of course, I had no idea. But mm. I was just captivated by this magnetic um, person. We didn't have television. It was banned because it was seen as a tool of the communists by the South African apartheid government. So we would sort of see him before movies. There'd be little clips. And I was also kind of bowled over by the fact that my teachers, um, some of them who were quite hardcore racists, um, 
loved Muhammad Ali. So, you know, in my early ten, teenage years, I was kind of battling with this and we'd ask teachers, but, you know, so how can you love Ali, but, you know, be so demeaning, well, we don't use the word demeaning, but you know what I mean, they'd be so yeah. dismissive of the black workers at our school. Um, and they say, oh, no, no, he's not like our blacks. He's just, he's Muhammad Ali, he's great. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, so that showed me what the power boxing had. And I guess that's when I started thinking, gosh, who are these fighters? And then as time went on and um, I moved to uh, London sort of in the 1980s and started working in, in boxing in the, about 1991 and started interviewing fighters um, and just was amazed. Um, you, could, you could meet almost any fighter in the world and, and interview him. And I thought, this is wonderful. Yeah. Mike Tyson was, was sort of the exception because at that stage, he was the baddest man on the planet and the, one of the most famous athletes in the world and an intimidating force. And um, But yeah, I, I got lucky at, you know, I had to persevere, but I managed to get some time with, with, with Tyson. And, you know, again, a bit like the Ferguson interview, but even much more in a physical sense, I was nervous then, like, how could this go? Because I'd, I knew all the footage, I'd seen the footage of, you know, when Tyson flipped out and smashed up television cameras. And, um, you know, it was, I wasn't sure how this was, was <laughs> going to go, but within, you know, again, minutes, he started talking in deep philosophical language about how, excuse my language, fucked up he was. Yeah. And attempting to kind of analyze why that was. And I, I was lucky I got him on a day when he just wanted to, to open up. And I subsequently, you know, I wrote a book called Dark Trade, which he, he features yeah. in. And then I interviewed him again in 2013. And we looked back on those days and you know, he just said, yeah, there, there were days when he he just was willing to talk. And that was a day with me, he, he was. So there's a lot of luck in it too, Ed, as, as you mm. know. How did you reflect on his his comeback, so to speak, in the kind of exhibition match against Roy Jones Jr.? Because I, I heard the two interviews that he did with Joe Rogan. He did one when he was very much living the life of a sort of uh, marijuana ranching hippie, sure. and he very <laughs> yeah. philosophical and chilled out. And then he went back after he'd resumed training and Joe Rogan said there was a sort of, you know, visceral tension in the air and that, that sort of fighter, the ego had reared up again, which which yeah. Tyson had talked about. Did, did that sadden you in a way that he'd, re he'd rediscovered that side of him or was that something he needed yeah. to do? Um, yeah, it's this whole thing, you know, fighters tend to be addicted to boxing. And um, I mean, I did feel the whole thing was a sham and I'm not a fan of, of the exhibitions, although, yes, uh, hopefully the damage is, is limited and, and they're not getting hurt more than they've been hurt in the past and i understand that it gives someone like mike tyson a discipline in his life and a goal and and that helps him um but for me personally ed you know jones and tyson two of the five figures in dark trade um yeah you know, who, especially jones at that time was the best fighter on the planet and an amazing gifted athlete and to see these kind of you know, middle-aged men shuffling out to fight again. You know, I didn't. I didn't even bother watching it. Um, no. Um, but who am I to judge them? And I, and I, I wouldn't judge them. But I just get a little concerned about the way this could go, and we could have old fighters, um, you know, getting even more damaged than they have been by the harshness of boxing. There's a danger of undermining, I think, long term, the mastery of the skill of boxing as well and the respect for it, isn't it? With the cult of short term money making, in a sense, where there's a sort of primal curiosity of just seeing people fight each other from celebrity backgrounds. We've got yeah. this situation where Floyd Mayweather is now entertaining a YouTuber who's had two boxing matches and, and not yeah. won either of them. And it's yeah. you're against one of the greatest of all time boxers. And obviously, there's a huge weight differential so it's, a, it's yeah. a ridiculous thing as a as a concept it's obviously because this guy can't box he's fighting Mayweather sure. I just wonder whether boxing suffers in the long term in terms of credibility from that I think it does and you know Floyd is a smart man and um, you know he's going to make many millions and uh, there's little damage, uh, danger for him in, in in that fight but I think it's 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 not good but I, again I'm also you know I suppose some of the fighters themselves who you know top fighters in the world today and, and they've also said well maybe boxing does need to get out of the old school kind of way of of presenting itself and you know um 
kids who you know are, are following youtube influencers you know maybe if we want to get them in, interested in boxing this is the way to go but personally it's not for me but um i think boxing has just so many complexities to it it you know the things we complain about now in 2021 people were complaining about in 19 <laughs> So I don't know whether boxing will, will ever change, but yeah. yes, the point about the skill um, and the discipline um, is is so valid. And these are, are men and more and more women today who, who pour so much of themselves into it. But it comes at a cost um, because there's no escaping the fact that boxing causes brain damage. Mm. And all these fighters, without exception, um, I'm beginning to think more and more have have been damaged by boxing and that's why i sort of tussle with it sometimes yeah well, if you've read and i know because you've got the testimony and i've got the pdf and i haven't yet read it but tris dixon's book damage uh former editor of the boxing news yeah. wonderful boxing author himself the road to nowhere is one of uh, my favorite boxing books that tris put together 20 years ago and he he has laid this out as almost uh, an exorcism for himself of, of the conflict that you talk about there, that which we've had. And I know you've done a piece with Jose Ramirez, who's fighting Josh Taylor this weekend in a, a big unification match. And I was at the Taylor Regis Progre fight, uh, commentating for, for Match Room World Feed. And that was one of the most compelling, thrilling, but also terrifying moments when I looked at it. And I was engrossed because I was doing boxing commentary for the first time. I'd done other sports, but usually yeah. as a presenter, I work. And I was, it was a wonderful match to, to commentate on. But I was just thinking no one was giving an inch in that match it was it, it and I was just wondering what the blows were taking off these guys thinking well I'm being paid to be here as well and I, oh, and I just yeah. felt conflicted about it it's a it's a complex one isn't it and I come back to free will and we we need to give these people men and women free will but they need to be informed of the of the real risk don't they that's the key I suppose yeah and you know Regis is is become a friend of mine and um I did a lot of work with him before that fight um spent you know a long time with him in the build-up I knew Josh Taylor quite well um and that fight yes it was a it was a wonderful fight in in kind of sporting terms but I was also concerned and I went to see Regis afterwards he lost uh, I wanted to see him. I didn't want to see Josh Taylor. And I saw his mother and his and his wife in, in tears. And I just left them and I walked a little bit further and I saw the ambulance coming. And I knew that ambulance was for him. Yeah. And, um, you know, he was taken away in an ambulance that night. And, you know, we I was messaging him the next morning. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm fine. And, but, you know, he reads a, a lot of my books and that's how we got to know each other. Um, and he's read books and he sort of says to me that I understand the damage that boxing does. And that's why he and I talk about it a lot. But yeah, I get emotionally um, involved with, with fighters and, and care about them. And I'm willing him on to win. But then I'm also seeing you know what is what is it's doing to him and going back to tris um i'm his book called damage which i'm doing a big feature for the guardian in in, in the next week um and i'm interviewing four people tris is one of them um and it's a hugely important book um mm. because we all talk about concussion in sport but the intention of boxing is to knock out your opponent mm -hmm. and um, it, it shows, we've all, we all know what boxing does, but this in a way looks at it at, at a medical angle, but also talks to fighters, fighters' wives, and, it, you know, it, it shows what Muhammad Ali, the greatest of all, you know, the fighter we all exalt, Muhammad Ali, what he did, you know, that it wasn't Parkinson's, it was boxing um, mm. that did that to Muhammad Ali. So it's a sober hard look at boxing um and tris and i we're funny enough we're talking this afternoon um and oh, we're great. both concerned because we um we both still love boxing and we so both still believe in in the good that boxing does and i'm hoping that the the book and also this piece that we're going to do together in the guardian will have some impact because it's not being done by people who's calling for the abolition of boxing it's being done by people who actually love fighters and care about boxing but we're getting to the point where something needs to be done because the damage is so deep and um, cannot be ignored. Um, it, it's complex philosophically, isn't it, though, as you reflect on it, because you do realise that, that life is is temporary and you, you know that it's not forever and that, that people should have a, a freedom and a, an ability to, to, to sort of make their choices. And we know that for a lot of these people, Regis Progre, I know his, his childhood home was destroyed by Hurricane Katrina and there was a, 
a really compelling backstory to how boxing has helped him. Muhammad Ali, you mentioned them. Ali always said that he couldn't have done what he did in terms of reaching people, in terms of the yeah. Vietnam War, in terms of trying yeah. to row back against racism if he hadn't have been a boxer. And going back to Jack yeah. Johnson and the yeah, fantastic book, Unforgivable Blackness, they've been... Yeah huge seismic figures haven't they so it's really complex but is it just information because you know we're looking i'm a father now of a six-year-old girl i'm thinking well can she play football now like i did because yeah. of what are the damages of heading the ball and what is yeah. rugby and american football or is it presenting the information and giving people that choice to to live their life it's a it's a very complex picture isn't it yeah. with with covid at the moment we're saying should we lock people up or should we give them freedom yeah. to make their own choices based on the risk? Do we know the risk? Is the information out there? That seems to be the, the integral part of it. Yeah. And you know, I didn't, I won't, I can't sort of divulge who it was, but last night I did an interview with a widow of a famous boxer who, who died. Um, and his death was basically caused by, by boxing. Um, and she it was quite clear what boxing had, had done to her husband. But she also was quite clear that her husband would not have been the person he was without boxing and that boxing gave him life. And she went into detail about the, the past and the childhood he had had. And without boxing, mm. his life would have ended much earlier. So she wasn't apologizing for boxing. She was in quite, with quite clear eyes saying, this is what cost my husband's life. But at the same time, she was saying, but what would his life have been without boxing? And it was an amazingly powerful um, interview. Um, so yeah, you know, boxing, <laughs> it's, it's such a complicated business, isn't it? But mm. uh, I still love talking to the fighters. And even though I'm getting more and more aware of, of the, the damage it does, um, I, I still, you know, get swept up in, in, in what they can do and also socially and politically what they can do. Yeah, it's, it is a, it is a very complicated picture. And it's, it's interesting that I've been covering MMA during the early stages of the, the pandemic. I pivoted a little bit to help out the multi-sport sure. department at Sky because our shifts were reduced because there was practically no sport happening, but there was mixed martial arts happening. And there's a, there's a perception, I think, viscerally when you watch that for the first part the optics is it's very much more savage than boxing but then yeah. people are into that sport say well we use smaller gloves that are that, that cause more acute knockouts they less sort of consistent head trauma and actually <laughs> our health records better than boxing so that i mean it almost goes down to the equipment as well doesn't it the type of gloves we're wearing should that be different for men and women because of the evidence around women be more likely to suffer concussion as well it's it's a, it's a very complex picture i know and edge you know i'm old school boxing so you know when the ufc started to take off i was such a snob but oh god ufc look how you know they pin the guy to the floor and the mm. apps how this looks like a fight outside a bar mm. i've since you know, been fortunate enough to interview some MMA fighters and, and, and understand how men and women, especially women in that in, in that sport, are given opportunities that they are not given in other sports. And yes, it is savage and and just such a violent um, yeah. sport is not the word, but activity. But in a way, I think it causes less damage than, than boxing. And certainly in Tris Dixon's book, he talks to a number of eminent doctors who, who are quite clear, who are not calling for the abolition of either sport, but those doctors are saying that MMA is less damaging than boxing because it lasts much quicker. It doesn't last for the, the sustained beating in a, mm -hmm. in a fight. Boxing is 36 minutes. MMA fights can be over in four, five, eight yeah. minutes. Um, so, yeah, I, I've had to change my perspective. And, and again, I think boxing needs to, to educate itself and the fighters more than anyone else should have the advantage of being educated about what this business is doing to them. But as you say, they should also be allowed to have the choice what they do with, with their lives. Yeah, like riding motorbikes or whatever dangerous yeah, activity you may endanger. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. It's one thing that's interesting me about MMA, and there's a debate, and I, and I now kind of have insight and, and, and watch commentary on both sides that the MMA is pushing for the Muhammad Ali Act there in terms of empowering them, them, the fighters in terms of purses. But what I've witnessed as well is the sheer depth and the opportunity given to the fighters in MMA. There's a card of 20 fights and there's not quite yeah. clearly the main event gets paid the most to two fighters, but there's not a polarization to the point in boxing where someone's picking up 300 quid for a fight and someone's picking up $30 million the next week. Yeah. It's, and, and, and that that is an interesting and nuanced debate because the top MMA fighters look at boxing and say, well, it could be earning more. But then yeah. there are people in boxing who 
either a white collar boxers or who can't get a, a career out of it. But in MMA, they're offered that because it's more like a league. It's more like the Premier League. The UFC is like the Premier League. There's Bellator. There's yeah. professional fighters league. They, they, this is a new one. They have actually almost a fixture list where it's like if you win this one, you fight this one. And it's like a schedule in front of them. Whereas boxing, who knows yeah. when any, anyone's going to fight because it takes so many different parties to, to come to an agreement. I know, and sort of friends of mine quite legitimately say, but we don't understand boxing because it's a bit like Manchester City cannot play Bayern Munich. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. You know, but we want to see, you know, ultimately we want to get to a Champions League semi-final where those kind of clubs are, are facing each other and doing it um, consistently. But boxing just constantly shoots itself in the foot. And there's also this obsession within boxing, um, you know, you, you you can't be defeated if yeah. you... If you defeat then that means you kind of damage goods using that awful <laughs> word um and so what happens is is you know even what's going on now with with aj and tyson i mean it's going on and on and on and the mm. fights and it's not happening even now we don't, is it going to happen maybe not and <laughs> just boxing, um you know just in pure sporting terms it, it's a maddening business isn't it because yeah. the best is hardly ever face each other or, or too late if they do like Mayweather yeah, yeah yeah absolutely you know and um but yeah boxing that's just the nature of it it's all about money ultimately and people um you know they fight their little corner and get as much money for themselves and they don't want to be logical and work together so it's a, a maddening business but here we are still following it hey yeah, what, what do you make of the, the landscape of that very summit of boxing and, and the figures that, that inhabit it and, and some of the, I suppose, philanthropic goals of the past, the altruistic goals that people like Muhammad Ali had. Clearly, he was a multimillionaire, but he had some some deeper goals and he was inspired by Jack Johnson, who was, yeah. you know, a lot more abrasive character in a sense even than Muhammad Ali and had to be because he was coming as the son of slaves in, in, into, into a scene and a world where it was very unwelcoming. And he had to almost just ignore all that to, to plough through, but he was... A trailblazer in in lots mm -hmm. of different ways and i know there was a, a reaction to it you've read about joe lewis and joe lewis was i guess quote unquote a more compliant black man in the united yeah. states after yeah. what jack yeah. johnson did but there's always been this this pivotal role and i do worry a little bit about the fury joshua thing and i can't talk too much about it but i just feel like the the location is difficult i think there should be more yeah. research into the the human rights aspect because and i know it's it's very complex because you look at the the rumble in the jungle and that was in a very of, yeah, not a, not a good part of the world. Yeah, of course, no. with a dictator. But yeah, and I mean, you know, I've asked that that question about Saudi and, and sports washing, and and the, the, the fighters tend to just uh, skirt it. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, it, it makes me uncomfortable that that fight is going to be held in Saudi if it is held. Um, and I think again, it's an education. I think you know, fighters should be told more. But those two fighters, AJ and Tyson, you know, I think also credit to them because I think. AJ gets accused of being a corporate kind of um, mm. figure who's, you know, quite careful about his, his public image. But last summer, you know, with the murder of George Floyd and um, uh, the Black Lives Matter um, movement becoming, you know, more and more important, you know, AJ did come out and he did, um, which is important. And then Tyson, what he has done with mental health has been seismic. You know, he, you know, I interviewed Tyson back in, um, 2015, yeah, and that was when I didn't know how it was going to go because he was in a dark place. And after was, Klitschko, no, uh, before Klitschko, um, oh, okay. and it was the first time he he sort of, well, he said to me the first time he'd spoken about his mental health, and he, he was saying that he actually wanted to kind of smash up the place where we we where we were sitting, which mm. was his home, me, his wife. Uh, a nervous photographer and <laughs> all kids. Um, and I just didn't know how that was going to go. But um, what Tyson has since done as a person has been so important. You know, he's, yeah, of course he beat Klitschko, but then he gave up the belts because his mental health was so impinged. And then he, he sort of inspired millions, I think, by the way he turned his life around. So I still feel Fices can do a lot of good. Um, but yeah, people like Ali and, and Jack Johnson, um, you know, they, they were the touchstones on, on what's what boxing can do in, in mm. social terms.
yeah, in different ways, Johnson physically to, to be the dominant heavyweight of the world and, and, and Ali in terms of his oratory and his magnetic personality to expose any myths about character or, or intelligence yeah. that were there. And I just wonder when you were growing up there, because I've been through this a little bit. My daughter had no cognition of, of this sort of adult construct, construct of race, which has been disavowed yeah. by science, where people say we're all homo sapiens and that's it. And it's yeah. different different levels of, of melanin based on how much yeah. sun your re recent ancestors have had, which is, you know, we've got ourselves in such a pickle with all this. I wonder if you remember growing up in South Africa when someone said to you that people are fundamentally different just by the, the tone of the skin, what your processing of that was like. Well, it was it was normal. So when I was a child, um, you know, obviously no black kids went to our school. Black people didn't catch the same bus or the same train. They couldn't go into hotels. Um, they were effectively workers, um, mm. domestic servants or gardeners. And they were, you know, a middle-aged black person who worked for my family became close to us, a woman. But she was called the girl always, even though she was in her 40s. Mm. And a gardener, um, a man in, I assume, I think he must have been 30s or 40s, he was called the garden boy. Mm. That's just how we spoke. And it was only when I was, um, you know, early adolescence um, that I started thinking that, no, I love Maggie, who was uh, uh, the woman who, you know, working within our house. And, you know, she is an exceptional person. <laughs> Um, you know, she's not she's not just the girl. And, um, you know, so my family started to educate ourselves. And then when we were young, Maggie and our, our gardener, when we made them a cup of coffee, they were not allowed to use our mugs or cups. They wow. had their own mug. That mm. showed how. And, you know, when I, I published a, a book called Under Our Skin, which is a memoir of my family and, and apartheid, and it was tough for my mother and father in a way to see that, but that's how it was. And But as it turned out, my dad ended up doing amazing work. And he was the guy who started to electrify black South Africa in terms of he was the head of the electricity company. And he did tangible wow. things that changed the lives of millions of, of black South Africans. I was just moaning about it, doing nothing. Um, so, you know, but it, it, my, my dad and my mother and I, my sister, we, we were steeped in apartheid and we accepted it as normal for a long time. Mm. But fortunately, and it was sport Ed, that, that changed my thinking because there was a sports boycott. South African teams could not play international sport, could not go to the Olympic Games. Yeah. And I would say to my dad, but why? And then my dad started explaining, well, it's because of apartheid. So sport... You know, has I love all kinds of things. I love movies. I love books. Love so much about about life. But sport, in a way, has been the one thing that has taught me more than anything. And that's why all these years later, I'm still kind of immersed in it. Yeah, and be it the European Super League or the, the destinations of certain big boxing matchups or other sports, yeah. but you hope that maybe sport will gain that moral consciousness because we're all act from self-interest and I'm totally appreciative that we all have bills to pay and we all yeah. want more money in theory, but I think there is a difference between more money when you're affluent and rich and more money when, you, when you're battling to survive and I think you have to sort of take your, your principles yeah. and, and put them in that context as well and, and hopefully sport will do that and we're seeing that a little bit with the European Super League where the, the public have, have had enough of certain profiteering yeah. and, and aspects to it and particularly the, the attempt to make football non-competitive which seems very uh, very peculiar it's against the whole ethos of sport doesn't it and yeah. i'm an arsenal supporter ed so um <laughs> i've had even a leaner time than you as a united supporter the last few years it's been yeah. a difficult old time but oh my god you know to, to imagine that arsenal and spurs could <laughs> <laughs> it's shameful it's and funny I mean, you have to laugh about it don't you european super league with their sort of mid-table it's in the premier league but I get so much abuse or friends of mine as if I'm personally, you know, shoehorning Arsenal into the ESL. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think in, in, in positive terms, it's, it's all fans have actually just spoken out and, you know, maybe issues of ownership now will be looked at. So, yeah, there's a little bit of hope that sport, even though it becomes more and more about money, um, we all, I think, especially over COVID, have understood that without, you know, the, the fans, it's, it is kind of an empty activity often. Yeah. And they pay everyone's bills, ultimately, my it bills, is. your bills. And that's the reality yeah, of it. It, keeps, it trickles back to that. And I think we have to be conscious of that sometimes. And I think maybe the owners have, have woken up to that fact, hopefully a little bit in the, in the football yeah. world. And what about the media? You, you touch upon it there. And 
I mean, it's interesting in my personal habits, I've, I've been sort of consumed by the, the digital age, but now I'm rowing back a little bit during COVID. My dad's a doctor. I'm reading his British medical journals. I'm reading the new scientist. I'm trying to look a little bit deeper at the picture here rather than the headlines and the, and the sort of banners and things. And you you live in that space, as I say, which is a relatively rare space at the moment where you're given time to, to, put, to put these longer form pieces together. Are you optimistic that there will be a, a reaction from the sort of junk food diet of the media we've had of late? I, I am optimistic. Um, you know, the Guardian, I send them mad because I'm always kind of, um, you know, when I when I do an interview and I sum it up, um, sometimes that can be 2000 words long. Yeah. That's a version of what, um, and then my first draft could be maybe 8000 words. And then, of course, fortunately, for anyone who looks at it, it gets chopped down to, to 2000 words eventually. Um, so they are amazingly patient with me. But I, the heartening thing, I think, from my perspective and their perspective to a certain extent is that some of the pieces I've done that have had the most impact have, well, I think almost all of them that have had the have sort of more of an impact than my normal bog standard things have mm. been the pieces where I've had time and space to go somewhere quite deep. And, you know, I interviewed a rugby league player um, who has motor neurone disease and um, I spoke to him and his wife, he can no longer talk. So difficult thing to interview a person who can no longer talk, but because of technology, he's able to use something called eye gaze, um, which enables him to text his answers, which then um, are a voice approximation comes out, which is actually his wow. voice in the answers. Um, so it was, it was a, such a moving um, time for me to to spend time with them this couple in their mid-30s facing up to to his death um and yet that piece you know modern media these days unfortunately sometimes the the success of a piece is, me is measured on the quality of um hits it gets yeah on the quantity of, of hits not so much the quality which i'm not always comfortable with but the quality yeah. of this time Actually, show that you know 1.2 million people read that piece within wow. 40 hours, um, and that was a piece where a lot of it was a long piece, and I had space, and I think that gives me hope that you know in in journalism um, there is scope for both hard hitting short news journalism but also for something that's a bit more reflective um so yeah i'm still hopeful that um you know we can go in depth in sports and you know what podcasts are doing now is just what you're doing here ed mm. with all your podcasts over the, the years i think it's giving a new way for sportsmen and women to to talk in in detail and i think that's got to be welcome so i feel fairly optimistic about the the future of journalism both broadcast and um written form mm. there's a lot of pessimism around 10 years ago in sense of pessimism around human capability like we're going towards a digital age where no one's attention is more than five minutes and we've got all these competitions yeah. for for attention yeah. which i think is is ominous in a sense because what we see there is, is is news journalism rather than presenting their attempt at the truth it becomes then how do we grab people's attention that's yeah. not always the the best route to take because it becomes superficial stuff it becomes alarmist stuff often yeah. because we've got that primeval brain to to jump on to to fear and and, and sort of click on things that, that maybe scare us so that's an, an interesting component of it but I, I just as a final thing dom i wondered in in that sense how do you navigate the modern world of ultimate constant connectivity when you're when you're trying to work on these pieces and trying to be meditative do you switch everything off is that a fact that you use <laughs> it's kind of exhausting isn't it because it's just it's absolutely kind of ceaseless um i do if i'm working on a particular piece or on my books yeah I, I do shut off for you know five six hours at a time um, and then find out what's been happening um but i think you you, you have to but it, it is it is exhausting um and social media as we know can be a cesspool and cesspit of, of, of negativity, but also can be a wonderful thing. And it can, um, you can learn things, you know, and get access to so much information. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a deluge. I, the way I cope with it is I just kind of do my own thing. And, um, you know, hopefully a few people will like it. And yeah. um, that's just what I, I kind of do. Because otherwise, if you start thinking about keeping up with the constant news feed, you'll go crazy, won't you? Yeah, do your, do your clicks for your piece in The Guardian come from social media? Or are they just people finding it organically through the internet? 
Uh, shows how much I know. I, I'm not sure. Um, no. I, think, I think, well, certainly, I think the, it's a, a bit of both. Um, um, I think, yeah, social media does push it quite hard, but yeah, I think people just sometimes, you know, word of mm. mouth sometimes works. Um, so, um, but yeah, I, I tend not to think too much about that side and just focus on on the interviews and the words and um, leave that to people who know what they're talking about when it comes to navigating um, traffic. And, yeah. and the it's, it's still some people like the hard copies as well, which I do when I catch a train. I like I like reading the newspaper so physically. So it's yeah. still it's still there to a certain extent. It's still, still there to a certain extent, as you say. Yes. Yeah, and we could, we can never quantify how many hits or clicks that got. So there's a sense we, that was a, a sort of a more a sanctuary for for more in depth yeah. stuff. But but Don, Don, I know you have to go. Mark our mark our card. There's the the Jose Ramirez interview, which is fascinating about his background and the and the sort of poverty he encountered in California. Up on the Guardian page. Anything else that we should be aware of? Books that you may be considering or or thinking. Uh, yes, I'm uh, working in long term on a, a new boxing book, which is sort of um, sounds awful to say, but it's a dark trade for the 2020s. Um, mm. Dark trade was set in the 1990s and followed you know, five or six fighters closely for a number of years. I'm sort of doing something similar because my books in between then and, and now often have gone back in the past. And um, I just actually wanted to do something that's actually about what's happening now. So it's a, a long haul, but I'm enjoying it. It's been affected by COVID, of course. I haven't mm. been able to fly to the States, but um, yeah, this is something that means a lot to me. So uh, one more boxing book for me, definitely in, in this one, and uh, maybe another one down the line. But, be um, called Dark Trade, will it be called that title? No, 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 I'll definitely no. change your title um and i'm different now to how i was then so it won't be the same kind of book but i think it'll be a book that again gets close to some significant figures within boxing and shows what it is like to be a fighter in the hardest and loneliest moments um anyway that's the plan but, uh, <laughs> but it seems to be going somewhere i think well i really appreciate your time don and i look forward to, to reading that book as well thank you thanks ed it's been a pleasure being on and uh thanks for having me Fantastic to get the insight and the elucidation of, of Don McRae's contradictions, complexities of covering the wonderful sport of boxing, inspiring, inspirational, uh, full of courage, full of wonderful characters. But at the same time, that conflict you feel knowing the damage that it, it wreaks upon its combatants. And I think Don is, is key about that. Loved his and found illuminating and appreciated his candor about growing up in apartheid South Africa as a, a white boy and how sport really opened his eyes to the injustices, the inequality and the absurdity absurdity of that <clears throat> separation, that segregation, that subjugation. And uh, yeah, a, a compelling character and, and, and occupying a space that is a fascinating one in, in sort of modern media landscape where he, he delves and deals in quality, in-depth interviews and features and books in a time when we're beset by clickbait. And maybe that's just attenuating slightly and maybe the culture is shifting back and we are appreciating more long form content like a podcast, I suppose the success of three hour Joe Rogan podcast, the international acclaim that he's received an audience and albeit controversy is, is interesting that, that that again is a sign that perhaps people are not as um, junk food like in their, in their habits in terms of media consumption as, as perhaps it's been indicated in the past decade or so. And, and Don is certainly a force in, in that, that kind of area as well and, and check out the the piece with jose ramirez who fights josh taylor this weekend wonderful detailed exploration of his past in california and the, the poverty he encountered there and the the adversity and the attritional nature of a lot of the people's lives in the community mexican american community that he grew up in so fascinating man don mccray appreciate his time thank you for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed it please rate it on itunes pass it on to a friend whatever platform you're listening to. If you could write some feedback, that'd be fantastic. You can get in touch with me, Ed Draper 81 on Twitter, Ed underscore Draper 81 on Instagram. Don's also on Twitter and Instagram. Not a big selfie merchant, I don't think, but he's uh, got some good links to his work up there and always part of the conversation. Thank you to the sponsors as well, Bagnolison of Cheltenham and Serene AV, specialists in some of the finest home entertainment brands providing solutions based around high quality customer service and installations. And if you are interested in optimizing your immunity at the moment, just tipping off, I suppose, the foundation of good sleep, good exercise, good diet, then 
the food-based supplements from cytoplan.co.uk are available at a discount with the association with the podcast. If you go to cytoplan.co.uk, C-Y-T-O-P-L-A-N.co.uk, the discount code is DRAPER10R, my last name, all capital letters, D-R-A-P-E-R, the numerals one zero and the capital letter R. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. And just a heads up that an interview with Tris Dixon will be coming out next week on Thursday, May the 27th, that I have actually just recorded prior to voicing this. And that's compelling about Tris's book, Damage, outlining the unequivocal scientific evidence and the powerful emotional qualitative research he's done interviewing boxers who's suffering the con- who are suffering the consequences and have suffered the consequences of of consistent head trauma being hit in the head, basically. So Tris's Tris's book, Damage, is out next week, former editor of the Boxing News, and he'll be on the podcast as well. So look out for that one in the coming days. Thank you, guys. Appreciate your support. Have a good weekend. Bye for now.